You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. We are recording on Thursday, August 20th, 2015. Victor is off today being awesome somewhere else. So I'm Shane. I'm hosting. We also have Mikey. Yo. And Neil. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's going great, everybody says. (laughs) So first story out of the gate, big deal, Project Titan the self-driving car is being tested at a former naval air base in California. What do we think? This is a place where I guess uh, a bunch of companies now that have self-driving cars are testing out their products before they put them on open roads. I guess it's an area that has some overpasses and they've built in some features there to make it like a normal you know, road setting that, that cars might have to go through. So um, the, the story was kind of interesting because I don't know where they came to the conclusion that it's self-driving. I think you could really test any car there, maybe not necessarily a self-driving one. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, this is a project that just continues to gain steam and, and there's more and more evidence that something's happening. And obviously with Apple, we're usually where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, I don't think it's, I think they got that because the place is designed to test self-driving cars. Isn't this the same place that Mythbusters did all their, their crazy car myths? I believe so, yeah. And I think didn't Tesla just use it for? Um, did they did they use that track to uh, show off the the uh, P eighty five or whatever they call it? Uh, the ludicrous speed. I don't know. Yes, <laughs> that was actually that car was just named by somebody the best car in the world. So Elon Musk. <laughs> actually, I think he retweeted it. That's how I saw it. But no, I think that's where they got it from. The place is designed to be used to test self-driving cars because it's a growing industry in California. But I don't think... But I mean, couldn't you just test a normal car there? Yeah, too? yeah. I'm, I'm guessing they don't no. care. I'm guessing they don't care if you open up your wallet, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, no normal's bring, allowed. You, you, you want to test your card. go-kart here? Let's go. Go ahead. Oh, that would be amazing. Well, it, what's weird about it is that the company behind it actually admitted that Apple was in talks with them. Um, the Guardian found this by uh, uh, digging through some uh, some documents that they that they found through a freedom of information request, and they found an email exchange where Apple never really admitted to doing a project. They just said they wanted to test they wanted to use the test site, and the company confirmed that they were in talks with Apple, but they couldn't say more than that. Which, you know, <laughs> someone's going to get. Uh, 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 <laughs> taken out silently because of that, but uh, yeah, you don't do that when you partner with Apple. Yeah, I think they, well, they were just misread trying to, the NDA. They're just uh, trying to test out their uh, self-driving lawnmowers on the, um, <laughs> you know, the Husqvarna, I believe, is one of the. And by the way, models. let's let's call let's call out this story because we had back in what was it February March, uh, through our own digging through documents and tips that were sent our way, um, learned a lot of information about this project Titan. Um, and where it's being worked on, supposedly at a uh, office facility in uh, Sunnyvale, California, not too far from Apple's campus. Um, and they installed a garage there, and they imported some cars there. And we had all kinds of uh, information on that that you can uh, go back and read, and we'll include in the show notes. But uh, yeah, the Guardian totally ripped us off wholesale on that. So thanks for that, guys. That was really cool. They well, did a lot of research on Google. Literally five minutes worth. It was uh, <laughs> yeah. it was an arduous yeah. process. Yeah, all of our details from our story back in March were uh, were included in their story, and uh, zero credit on that. So that was that was kind of crappy. You would say it's almost magically crappy, which leads us yeah. in an awesome segue into our next story. 
which is new Magic Mouse with the same terrible ergonomics and a new Apple Wireless <laughs> keyboard, both with Bluetooth 4.2 low energy, because that's what people care about, not hand cramps. <laughs> yeah, I've I'm... never been a fan of Apple's m- mice, even from the puck. And uh, I don't know. I like how you said Maybe even... they'll make this one. I like how you said even from the puck as though that was a universally loved and sheared design. I feel like that was a that was like when people kind of took notice of the Apple Mouse as being uh, different than the other ones. And it was different because no one uh, because would terrible. dare create a mouse <laughs> in in the form of a circular puck that uh you can't really, you know, hold in your hand and I don't know. It was just a bad bad design. It looked nice though. There's no disagreement. Well, as someone who hates, as someone who hates AA batteries, I think the best feature of this is the fact that these are going to have integrated batteries in them. Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely yeah. do. Or especially the Magic Mouse eats batteries. I actually really love the Magic Mouse functionally. Um, mm-hmm. I really wish that Logitech's multi-touch mouse was better because it's much more ergonomically comfortable. But yeah, trying to work with a Magic Mouse for hours a day is is torture. Why just, is there no Magic thin. Trackpad here? That is an mm. excellent question. I yep. wonder if mm. they will either drop it or maybe they're working on a force touch model, perhaps. Perhaps. What, I mean, what if they're doing a force touch for the magic mouse and there's no clicking involved? That'd be kind of cool, maybe. That would be even worse. Uh, <laughs> that would make the mouse even worse than it already is. What? Yeah, I don't what? know. What? And the wor- I'll tell you what the worst part of you having said that is. Now that I'm looking at the mouse, I can see that if they did that, it would be much thinner and more Damn right. beautiful. So I'm absolutely positive that's what will happen. Damn right it will. The, the thinner is better. Force touch is one of those things that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a neat technical achievement on the MacBook Pro as it is right now and in, in the smaller MacBook. But I'm not really sure... Uh, how much of a uh, enhancement it is to the Mac operating system. I'm not sure how necessary it is. I mean, yeah. essentially right now, there are some things that you can do where you like can scrub slower, faster, based on how hard you're pressing, but you have to kind of press a little hard to do it, and it's uncomfortable on your fingers. And then other than that, the deep click is just basically replacing the triple finger click. So, <laughs> I don't know why, but every time I uh, read or hear uh, Apple talking about deep clicks or deep <laughs> presses, it's kind of... Um, Sexual. Sensual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't deep, know that force touch here. I don't know the force touch adds a ton on the Mac. I think it would add a ton on the iPhone, obviously, because you have like tiny screen real estate and it's kind of annoying to have to jump into a settings menu or a hamburger menu or whatever every time you want to do some sort of minorly advanced uh operation. But But doesn't I, yeah. that make what? the operating system needlessly complex? Like you know, it'll be great to presumably with an iPhone 6S and Force Touch get rid of all the dot dot dots that are in the new music app that look ridiculous. Yeah, that's what I mean. But um, yeah, but I mean, for someone who's new to the platform or doesn't understand that or whatever, how do you make it so that everything that offers Force Touch is is apparent or known? Like on the watch, it's kind of trial and error, isn't it? Like you kind of open an app yeah. and then force touch and see if it does something. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel like that's kind of a clunky way to do it. I realize that they're addressing smaller screen real estate. But I wonder, you know, on, on a phone, how well that's going to work. Well, I mean, we've, we've, we've trained people to use, you know, the little, the little three-dot menus and the hamburger menus. We've trained people to recognize that. Yeah. So I, I just imagine there will be an adjustment period, right? In two years. Yeah, well, I, think there needs with... to be a, I think there needs to be a visual cue. There needs to be something there to let you know. 
Yeah. Eh, maybe. Well, I think the problem with um, – oh, do you remember those old – like the Alps, the built-in – like when they first started uh, putting touchpads into like ThinkPad and stuff? There would be a little icon on the bottom right. I don't know if you use Windows, but it would have like the Alps um, driver and it would tell you red, green, blue how hard you were pressing on it. No. Oh. Okay, just me. I mean, I don't remember. I heard from an, a friend of mine who's old yeah. <laughs> that actually used these machines. Yeah, but I mean, the problem with Force Touch is that it's kind of vague, right? It's not you, – you can't really have that granular level of control because um, it, you, you can't see the steps that the machine is taking uh, – is reading yeah. from – well, your no, pressure point. You just, need, you just need to get used to it. It's no different than using a pressure-sensitive drawing tablet, right? Which I've used tons of times in my life. Um, you just, it, it takes a little. It takes a little while, but eventually you learn. You learn how how your finger. I guess how your finger feels is a good way to describe it, right? You. It's no. How deep? How deep it has gone. <laughs> how deep your finger has gone. Yes. It's no, well, well, I don't know. It's no, it's mean, no different a, than learning the tactile feeling of picking up something really fragile, right? Like you, you don't, you're not born with the innate sense to to pick up a leaf differently than you pick up a brick, right? You learn as you go. And it's the same with anything like this. Um, I think, yeah, I think that there's, I, mean, for, some, I think there's something that Apple's been doing though that kind of concerns me when you look at uh, iOS nine and some of the features. Like we did a first or a look at some of the hidden features of it and one of the things was to request a desktop site now you press and long press on the refresh button in safari and it's like who the heck is going to figure that out you know like it's so hidden well they've been hiding that stuff yeah. for a long time like the the thing we found just the other day after ios 8 being out forever that you can call up recently used tabs by holding down the new tab button in yeah safari. yeah and yeah, I mean, I, I nobody knows about that by stuff. accident. No, well, I mean, that's so BuzzFeed can have the top 10 iOS 8 <laughs> features or top 10 hidden iOS features, you know? Yeah. You'll that's never great. believe number three. Well, that's there crazy. will be a lot of BuzzFeed articles about what you can use Force Touch on then for uh, for the iPhone success because, and I, I just don't, there's going to be, it's going to be very confusing at first. The way developers implement it, I feel like you need to have some sort of a visual cue. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's necessary on a on a big on a big device like a laptop. I can see it on like a small screen, like a iPhone, and necessarily on like a watch where you you know you're in want of space. But for something like a a laptop that has a full size keyboard, I don't know if there's a place for it really. Well, I think so. It's safe to say that neither of you will be disappointed if the Magic Mouse Two does not have Force Touch. Um. Yeah. I won't, well, I won't I be disappointed using... because it'll be even worse to hold. <laughs> yeah. But I actually would like... I do think there's a place for Force Touch on the desktop, unlike the two of you, because I'm not thinking of it as a uh, as a way to control the UI. I'm thinking of it as a way to control other stuff, right? Um, right. Haptic feedback in iMovie is amazing. If I could have... I spend a lot of my days in Adobe's Creative Suite, right? If I could have oh, that little... If I could have that little haptic tap that iMovie has for, like, when something is aligned in Illustrator, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. That's the kind of stuff that I want a a deep UI for. You know? I don't necessarily yeah, care whether so the menus are hidden. I want something touchable. There you go. <laughs> and on touchable, we move on to our next subject. The Apple TV service pushed back. Are we sad? No. Meh. 
I don't I don't know that you know I'm excited about the idea of an Apple TV service. Um, I like more competition in the marketplace. But I've already got to pay Time Warner for internet, and they're going to bundle it with the TV, and they're going to make sure it's cheaper than buying the internet alone. And you just can't get out of this trap, you know. Um, a lot of times when you sign up for HBO through your cable provider, they cut you a deal. You get it for $10 for the first two years, and they'll bundle uh, Showtime with it. If you buy it now as a standalone app on Apple TV, it's $15 a month, no discounts, no package deals, nothing. So, uh, I mean, it's a good thing that they're going to do this, and I'm excited for the inevitable future of internet television. But uh, unless it's something really, really affordable um, and has a great lineup of channels, uh, which the networks would never agree to, then I, I don't, I don't know how big of a deal it really could be. Are you uh, looking forward to um, the inevitable system status, uh, yellow and red? dots cutouts <laughs> your tv is down yeah and until yeah. you get rid of, of of the cable providers and their control on home internet this isn't going to change this is for this is really cool if you live somewhere uh where you can get google fiber or you uh are entirely on a uh, mobile data plan and have like unlimited bandwidth or something but other than that uh I mean, I have a, I live in New York, and I have a phone line that I it is included in my bundle because it's cheaper for me to have the phone line than not to have it. And a company that does that, do you really think that they're going to let Apple undercut them? They're going to bundle it somehow because they know that I'm going to buy the internet. So what if Apple cuts a deal with the with the uh, telcos and you get a bundle deal on the Apple TV service? I would buy in. I would be all about it. So I don't know. Go- I don't know. See, I, I have a, a sling box, and I don't use it as much anymore, but I used to for uh, sports a lot. Like if I was out somewhere and I wanted to watch a game and I could stream it on my phone, it was awesome. Now, if I could get a platform like that where it'll stream to any device, including my Apple TV, my phone, no matter where I am, sign me up. I'm all about it. Live TV on my phone? Yes, please. So you're not- <laughs> when uh, sling... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I, I was just going to say a side note. Okay, about sling box. It's totally off topic, but... Uh- <clears throat> I had a sling box when I was living in Japan and I was slinging my TV from home to Japan because um, Japanese TV is kind of weird it's at terrible. times. <laughs> yeah. So so I would I would sling all my channels from the US to Japan and it was pretty flawless. It was, it was a good good setup. Uh, yeah, I it's it's, it's a too, cool product actually in mainland China. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. it's good stuff. The main problem anyway. is the IR connection because our devices aren't smart. So you have a sling box and it controls your cable box and your TV through an IR blaster. And there's no way for it to know which devices are in and out of sync if the, if the button doesn't press doesn't get picked up. So then you end up with this nightmare where you're, you know, a thousand miles away and trying to control your TV. And it's hard enough to control your TV when you're sitting at home on your couch. So See, I was yeah. smart and put it in my parents' spare bedroom. So when I had that problem, I could just call, be like, "Mom, could you <laughs> can you go turn on the TV, please?" <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, the other part of this, though, was um, who was it that uh, uh, I'll have to pull up this story here that we ran. It was a uh, analyst who was talking about uh, the possibility for the Apple TV being a game console, and this is something that I've been excited about as somebody who still plays console games and has all the consoles. Um, it's a $34 billion market, and J.P. Morgan put out a note this week saying that uh, they think that Apple could take a pretty big chunk of that, and they see that actually affecting Apple's bottom line more than the 
hardware or even a, a streaming TV service. They think that the margins there could be pretty good and, and, and uh, would really help Apple. The problem I see with uh, the argument there being made by J.P. Morgan is this race to the bottom slash free apps pricing of the App Store. And if that were to translate to an Apple TV, this whole concept of $60 video games on Apple TV might be uh, pretty difficult to get over with consumers, don't you think? Yeah, well, I mean, plus you're going to have to have the, I mean, who knows what the hardware is going to be like, but, I mean, if you look at, I know you're complaining about the Xbox One, but that thing is huge. And yes, Physically it barely or runs in sales. Uh, not in sales. Physically, <laughs> but yeah, physically. I mean, it's a big hunk of black plastic that's sitting right below your TV, right? Uh, Apple TV compared to that, you could maybe you could shove the Apple TV into the Xbox's drive. That's how huge it is. So yes. I mean, you have all that hard hardware and you know processing power. What kind of games are you going to play on something that's one twentieth the size? Well, my problem when well, I first I have, read that, I, I have Bioshock on my iPad, so there you go. My problem when I first read that report mm. is they're assuming that people are going to buy it as a game console, right? Mm. Oh yeah. Here's my question: Who who is going to who? What people who are going to buy a game console for their living room are going to buy an Apple TV instead? Of an X-Bone. <laughs> people who buy the Fire TV. Yeah, but people don't buy a Fire TV to be a game console. They That's a selling what? point of it, well, right? Oh, people don't, people don't buy an iPhone to be a phone, though. I, I, I think that a device that does multiple things and can serve different members of a family and a household uh, only serves to grow sales. It's, that's the whole concept of an app store, right? You can make apps for whatever you want. So if they put an app store on the Apple TV, which they're going to do... Um, if people want to play games, they're there. I don't think Apple sells it as a game console. I think what they do is they give the opportunity for games to be there. So you can buy a Bluetooth controller, you can buy an Apple TV, and if Activision wants to put the latest Call of Duty on there and try to sell it for 60 bucks, you see how it goes. I just don't know if the people who buy the $100 Apple TV will buy a Call of Duty for $60 on an Apple TV. But in ter- and what you're saying, Mikey, about uh, the quality of the games on there, I, I don't doubt that at all. The A8 processor uh is capable of doing essentially ps3 quality graphics a little bit less uh based on uh what uh we've seen out there there's some really great high quality games and you can play console style games on your iphone and your ipad i can play bioshock bioshock on my iphone with a controller and the graphics are a little scaled down from what they were on xbox 360 but that that's a relatively recent game running on relatively recent hardware so I think that there, the, the, the games could be there. It's just a question of will people pay for it or are we going to end up in freemium hell? My problem with mm. this is the assumption that Apple is going to take a slice of the game console market with the Apple TV. I, think, I, I don't grant that premise at all. I don't think there's any scenario. I think they will accidentally create a nice yeah. game console, but they're not going to capture a slice of this existing console market, right? Well, I think it's inevitable that the console business 15 years from now is dead anyhow. It's always been a hardcore market. The reason that there's a lot of money in it is because people pay $60 for games, you know? So when the new Grand Theft Auto comes out, it makes like, you know, a billion dollars in its first weekend 
because they sell, you know, 10 million copies of it or whatever. And, and people are paying for deluxe editions that cost over a hundred bucks and stuff. So it's a small, but really, 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 uh, um, uh, uh, market that caters to enthusiasts, people that are really into it. And so you look at, um, you, you look at the opportunity for the Apple TV and it's there, but if you look at like the biggest, most popular game console, it's the Nintendo Wii, right? That was the biggest one. And that was the one that had the largest crossover appeal with casual gamers. But they still only sold, I think, like 200 million Wiis. And it's like, that's nothing, you know? Well, it would be interesting to see, um, because I know a lot of, uh, well, I don't know a lot of kids, but you know, my friends' uh, children who grew, grew up on iPad and playing Angry Birds and stuff, and not so much console level games how that's going to translate because i mean soon they're going to be asking for um to play on the tv you know i mean they've been playing these these ios games since they were toddlers so i mean that's what they're what i I would like to see is a diversity of games i would like to see uh quick dollar games that you can download and play and have fun with and i like you know, big budget quality games. I love Nintendo games and I'm happy to pay $50, $60 for a good game from Nintendo. Uh, even if there's a great game out there for a dollar, it's just different markets, different, uh, you know, different segments that Apple can appeal to. People can buy it and just not play games on it. So let me ask you this. If there is a scenario in which the new Apple TV is legitimate console competitor, what makes it any better than a PS3 or an Xbox one? Cross-platform gameplay. Cross-platform gameplay. So make an app for your iPhone. For yep, iPhone, iPad, um, Apple TV. Go uh, over to your friend's house, play games on their TV. Game syncs with iCloud. Play it on the train. Play it on an airplane. But PlayStation has been. I mean, Sony's been trying to do that for for years, and they well, the problem with that is uh, yeah, they have PlayStation Vita, which nobody owns. The difference is I own it. an iPhone, right? I have a PlayStation Vita as well. I am a nobody. Um, they are, there are cross-platform games that you can buy once and get on both PS3 or PS4 and Vita, and in some cases, all three platforms. But developers don't have to do that. You can make a separate uh, uh, app, and, and, some, and many developers do that. Uh, there's, a grand, there's a game called Dragon's Crown, and you have to buy it at $30 on PS4 and $30 on PlayStation Vita. And you have to buy it twice if you want to play it on both. And the game syncs will all sync across, and it's the same game, but they just charge twice for it. Now, there are some other games that play on both, and you can just buy it once. You have less friction on the iOS platform because developers want their apps on both iPhone and iPad, and you just pay for it once. And you can install it on multiple devices. You don't have to pay for it again. So I think if you You see that start to take, that would be awesome. Mm -hmm. You know what I'd like to see is uh, the speed at which an iOS game loads for something that I can play on my TV because I am... So tired of waiting hours to download a game. I don't know if you download your games or buy it on um, physical. Format, I usually just buy them on disc. Oh, yeah. The hard I uh, download mine because I'm lazy. <laughs> oh, you gotta get the external stuff, bruh. Well, that's because it's, it's you live a bad experience. Though. That's because you live three thousand miles from the nearest server. <laughs> well, how dare you? It's such a bad that. experience, I a, though. I've been. I play games off and on, right? And I've been really into it the last couple of weeks because there's a new Metal Gear Solid coming out and I have an X-Bone. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, I it's free for Xbox Live members this month to download the prequel to it, uh, Ground Zeroes, Metal Gear Solid Five. So I downloaded that, but like it was immediately crashing. I had to restart my Xbox, and then I bought the new Batman well, game, uh, Arkham Knight, and that crashes. Like I was playing it last night, and I was in the middle of a mission, and it just crashed. And it's like, what is going on? The experience is just awful. Yeah, well, uh, the experience of the working uh, Metal Gear Solid uh, prequel is awful as well. So. Just let I you enjoyed know. It. It's I, not worth it. I did not pay for it. Really? For it was... Yeah, it was really bad. I'm sorry. I have to say that. Well, if I had the choice between buying it on an X-Bone with better graphics or buying it on a iPhone with slightly less better graphics but being able to play it across devices more easily, I would definitely pay the full $60 price for a game and get it on my phone. So do you think developers will actually go that route? Because you don't have to make a game available yeah. on every iOS device, right? So do you do you really foresee a scenario in which a developer will forego the double revenue? I do, because you see it now with iPhone and iPad. I think only for convenience. That, yeah. like, there's no AAA titles, right? I mean, or I guess... Bioshock. Yeah, no, yeah other than Bioshock. But there's there's no... <laughs> you, Call of Duty uh, is not... Grand Theft Auto. Call of Duty is not... Well, yeah, but the GTA Five is not on iPad, right? This no, one, but San Andreas is, is and uh, uh, and GTA Three. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm saying new releases, right? If you let's right. let's see in the future, right? Um, GTA Seventeen comes out right. on iOS, right? Are they really going to give yeah. up the revenue split for you to buy it once on iPad, once on Apple TV? I, I think if that becomes what consumers expect, if it's the norm, then there's a there's a potential for it. I see why you're cynical on that one, and I agree with you. Um, it will inevitably probably turn into that, uh, but I hope not. But I could see a future where in-app purchase, make this available on your iPhone too, something like that. It's like, oh, geez, here we go, nickel and diming you. Yeah. Well, I hope it's not 107 degrees here tomorrow, but that's you know a bridge too far. <laughs> so you definitely want you definitely want gaming on the Apple TV. What about uh, home automation? Yes, absolutely. If the voice control works well, it will be awesome. That's a big if. We were talking about this earlier, and what we were saying is you were of the opinion that they would put a microphone in the remote control, right? No, no. I think they'll just put it in the in the puck, and oh, it'll you think, be an all-in-one design. And it'll just suck. Yeah, and I, and I think because it's so small and uh, it's difficult to do processing of voice in a room and varieties of rooms with different layouts, configurations, furniture, stuff on the walls, all that, uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult, as can be seen with the X bone, as we call it. Um, you, it, it doesn't work half the time. You try to talk to your Xbox and it doesn't listen. It doesn't get the commands right. You have to be standing right in front of the TV. You have to configure it for your room. It has to know where your speakers are, stuff like that. So that's going to be really difficult to do. And you can see how Amazon bypassed it and they put the microphone in the remote control. And mm-hmm. that is one way of doing it. I just can't see Apple doing that. But I, maybe, you know, if, if this new uh, 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 controller with the touchpad is that fancy, they'll put a microphone in it or something. But I would, I would suspect that Apple, to keep it as simple aesthetically and, and as possible, will just put it all in one unit. What if they tap the iPhone? That's what I said. They could, but um, then how, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess your iPhone would then talk to the Apple TV, which would then talk to the... Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but then what's the point of the Apple TV, right? I think the point is you could just be walking around your house, not have your phone on you, maybe not own an Apple Watch, and just yell out, hey, Siri, and have it do something. Oh, and my phone just turned on with hey, Siri, so there we go. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, I think that's like the the awesome future. The word I yeah. can't remember. Um, what's what's the, what the hell is the word for uh, utopian? There you go. That's the utopian yes, vision yes. of the future. Uh, but I mean, where all of your not... devices are always listening to you and mis yeah, and yeah. mishearing what you're saying. Yeah. Recently, I actually took the opening theme from Iron Man, where his shades rise and says "Good morning, Mr. Stark," whatever, and made it my alarm tone for my phone. Greatest mornings ever since then. <laughs> but to, anyway, to take advantage of home automation on your TV or home automation in general, you have to have smart appliances or smart stuff in your house. And most people don't, right? Most people have the same old Kenwood stove that they grew up with in their parents' house and a normal microwave because we're not all Tony Stark. Uh, Mikey, you reviewed a smart plug called the smart plug. How was it? I know. It's a, it's an amazingly imaginative name. Um, it was it was pretty good, actually. I mean, for someone who's maybe not so adept at the connected home game or this is their first smart device i think it's a good it's a good starting off point it's kind of pricey forty dollars um for basically a switch that you can turn on and off with your with your phone but it does have home kit compatibility so you can tell um uh, for example right now i have it connected to a house fan um and i labeled it living room fan so i can tell siri to turn on my living room fan and also check if it's on or off. So, I mean, that's uh, it's good and it works. It's fast. It's probably one of the fastest smart devices or smart home devices that uh, I've used so far, which is pretty impressive. Um, yeah. Part of that, let's go ahead. I was going to say, have you used the Wemo version of that, the Belkin version? Yeah, um, I didn't like it. <laughs> okay. It didn't work for me for some reason. I mean. I'm not sure other people's experiences might be different, but uh, this one is much better. And the form factor is better because you can plug in two in a standard U.S. socket. Whereas I think the Wemo one that I used was fat and it would yeah, take up bigger. half the space. Yeah. So, I mean, this one's made to stack. It looks, it looks kind of funny on the wall because it, it has the iHome white LED logo glaring at you as well as like this small status light this green status light but aside from that i mean it's it fits in well with the decor as long as your walls are white i suppose so who's, it's who's a, the market for this uh, i would say anyone thinking about entering the smart home uh game anyone who's interested in controlling pretty much any device you plug into a wall up to uh, how many watt 1800 watts i think so it, it won't be it won't be connecting to your air conditioner your your wall mounted air conditioner anytime soon but um for other things like lights like if you don't have hue lights or or whatever brand you want to stick in there it's a good alternative and it works fairly well with HomeKit, even though HomeKit, I feel, is broken right now. So, so how does, how does it work? All right. So you can, of course, you have to download iHome's app, which is kind of a pain if you have other smart home devices. But you can open it in the app, turn it on and off from there. Uh, but what I've been doing is invoking it from Siri. So I just tell Siri, turn my living room fan on. How do you it's tell it what to name it in Siri? Like, 
how does it know that it's your living room fan? How does that work? That'll that's done in the iHome app, um, mm-hmm. and I think I wasn't able to test it because I only have one for review. But I changed right. it up, like I changed it to bedroom, and it recognized it. But on Siri, when it responds to you, it will just say your fan is on, or your fan is now on. It won't specify your living room fan is on. But when you give it the command, it will be able to parse that data, like your living room fan. So you can type in any word you want, like um, you can name it something arbitrary if you wanted? How does that work? Yeah, like toast box or something. Turn toast yeah, like, well, like, if, like let's say I want to do assign it to a person rather than a room, like turn on Neil's fan. <laughs> could I do that? Yeah, in that, well, in that case, it will, you could do that. Uh, but in that mm-hmm. case, it'll refer to it as your outlet, I think it was. Yeah. It says, it calls it your outlet. Your outlet is turned on. I totally so thought you could say, can I name the fan something? It'd be like, can I turn Mikey on? Yeah. <laughs> can Mikey go deeper? <laughs> can you press deeper? Turn, turn it on. <laughs> but no, like, so it's not like a drop-down menu where you have a choice of appliances, right? You can just type in whatever you want? No. Yeah. The only problem with that is it won't show up on Siri. Like when you re- when you you're asking it, is my living room fan on? It'll say yeah. your outlet is on, and then you'll be like, which outlet? I asked you, is the living room outlet on? So you can't really get a confirmation right. from Siri. You're gonna have to go into the app itself and visually see that the outlet is on or off. Was that and in the app? It it'll, it'll have a status um, icon. Is that maybe because you only have one? It could be, but um, I made a faux uh, device. I named it, you know, something different than this one, and um, it didn't give me any error messages. So I assume that it's working. So can you just say like, I home. Can you just say turn the fan on, or do you have to specify turn the living room fan on? If you have more than one fan, I think you have to say you have to specify. Um, but in that case, you would group it together with, like, you can group it together by room, right? Like, turn my living room outlets on, and it'll turn all the outlets on. So, you can do it that way. I think they call it scenes as well in iHome. Have you tried to yeah. use, so, have you tried to use it remotely through the, do you have an Apple TV to be a bridge? Uh, it doesn't need one because it's a Wi-Fi. So, ah, okay. Yeah. So, that's good. So, I, yeah, I mean, I did try to do it remotely um and it works over my over cellular so that's good because on the other uh home kit devices uh not home kit yeah home kit that it's kind of spotty right when you're out and you tell siri to turn something on <clears throat> it's not really 100 percent that you're going to get the thing to turn on if it's bluetooth but this is separate from the apple tv hub so one of the things about the future of home automation, one of the things everybody trumpets, right, is the ability to do stuff remotely, right, to do it from anywhere. Um, and to do that, you need a good cloud presence. Apple has iCloud and enormous data centers everywhere on Earth. Uh, did you see the other day, actually, Google, uh, their data center it's somewhere in northern Europe got struck by lightning four times uh, in quick succession, and they lost some data. Uh, because of that. Wow. Yeah, that, it was something tiny, like 0.00001% 
of the data stored in those in those drives. But still, Google lost data in the data center. It's a big deal. Um, wow. Software, who's a company owned by IBM, Software has been around for a long time. Uh, they're a great infrastructure provider. I've used them personally in the past. They're amazing. Um, for anybody who's in this business, uh, if, you, if you've used Rackspace or you know Rackspace's reputation, uh, Software is right up there with Rackspace. They're a great company. Um, recently bought out by IBM. Nothing has changed. They've gotten bigger with IBM, obviously. They've gained some more capabilities, but everything else is still the same. Amazing support. Uh, I will never hesitate to recommend them. Softlayer is a sponsor of our podcast, and as a result, if you are listening and you go to softlayer.com slash podcast with a capital P, it is case-sensitive, podcast with a capital P, you can get five up to $500 of cloud infrastructure uh, for free. You can get bare metal servers, virtual servers, uh, network storage, security services, anything you want. They've got 24 data centers around the world. Uh, their support, as always, is amazing. So yeah, go ahead, softlayer.com forward slash podcast with a capital P. So moving on, uh, Neil, earlier this week or last week, depending on when the people were listening to this podcast, you took a look at a new tethered drone that you really liked. Yeah, I thought this was a pretty cool concept. Uh, it's called the Photokite Fee. And uh, when they first reached out to us and, and offered uh, to take a look, I kind of was like, I don't know, what's the appeal of a drone on a leash? And um, I didn't really, uh, I guess, realize how how much potential that actually has and how the limitations of a leash could actually be a benefit in some ways. So the, uh, we don't usually cover crowdfunding campaigns for a number of obvious reasons, including the fact that they never ship on time and sometimes don't even end up being real products. But uh, we do uh, occasionally cover them if someone has a working device that they can show us and we can actually see as a real product. And so this is one of those cases. Um, it's a, uh, a company that uh, currently is making um, uh, high-end drones that uh, are for like uh, documentary slash news crews, journalists, stuff like that. And it's a pretty interesting contraption that you can take out in the field and it tethers to the ground with a cord that actually has power going through it and live camera feed. So you could keep it in the air essentially forever. So like let's say there's an aerial shot you want to get of some protests or something going on. You just launch this thing in the air and it continues to film and stays up there. Pretty neat. This is a low-end um, consumer version of it. Uh, so no power from the ground. It has all the power on the device itself. Flies for about 15 minutes. Um, and it's got a leash on it like you would have with a, a pet. Uh, like if you take your dog for a walk, but the the tension on the leash allows the drone to move with you. So you can walk with it or toward it, and the, it will stay at that same distance. Uh, and so that has a lot of obvious advantages, including the fact that it won't just fly away on you. Um, if you're recording with it, everybody knows who's recording with it rather than some mystery man in the corner with a controller. Um, it's very quick to get it up in the air. There's not a lot of setup involved or anything like that. It folds up into a really cool design. That was my favorite part of it, um, having tested a lot of drones and wanting to take them on vacation. This is something that you could actually take with you uh, very easily in transport. And um, it's relatively affordable. Uh, it, the, the early backers on Kickstarter can get it for somewhere between $250 and $350, depending on when you get in on it. Um, and I said Kickstarter, but I should say Indiegogo, sorry. Um, but the final price is going to be $500. I don't know that that is going to fly just because, no pun intended, by the way, uh, just because um, you have to bring your own GoPro. 
And if you're going to spend $400 on a GoPro and $500 on this drone, you're already at essentially the price of a really nice DJI uh, drone. But having said that, the leash does, like I said, have some advantages. Um, when it was demoed for me, I was in a small conference room, um, and the, the guy who invented it, Sergey, just had it up and flying right in front of him, and it was perfectly within his control right there in a conference room. So no need for GPS or anything like that. So it does have its advantages, and it's a, it's a really cool product, and it's something different in a market where everything's kind of just getting, you know, uh, very samey, you know, just a camera on, on a flying machine. But this is something that it brings something unique to the table. So when when you say it has uh, tension on it, is it constant tension? So like there's always tension on the tether? Like yes. is it always constantly so, pulling away from you? Okay. Not not like pulling hard, but it, it no, you well, can yeah, get it slack and let it go more. And then to pull it in, you just uh, apply more tension to it. One thing I'm not clear on how it works, and I assume that maybe there's a setting or maybe you can just do it when you let the slack out all the way so that the cable goes 26 feet. Uh, they did have videos of people like snowboarding with it and uh, riding on a uh, sled with it and just pulling the drone behind them. Um I'm not sure how that would work uh, in terms of the tension because obviously when you're pulling it at a great speed like that, it would be a lot more tension. My assumption is it just will max out to the 26-foot distance and then just follow you from that height. What if the tether breaks? Uh, it has an auto-to-the-ground mechanism. So if the tether breaks, it just yeah. immediately just goes straight down. What's One of the really cool things about it, though, is... Uh, the handle on it actually has gyroscopes in it. So what you do is you just twist your wrist and the thing just takes off in the direction you point it in. So you can point it away from you, straight up in the air, whatever. But once it's up there, if you want to move it around, pan around, uh, get a 360-degree shot, you press a button on the leash and you just tilt it and the gyroscopes in it allow you to change the positioning of it in the air. You can make it lower, you can make it higher, you can tilt it left and right and, and do all kinds of stuff like that. So there's, a, there's precision control in it. It's not just a flying thing tethered to you. You can actually do cool stuff with it. Isn't one of their hmm. selling points that you can use it around crowds? Uh, like in Europe, it's li it's licensed for use near people, right? Yes, they actually got special exemptions for their model because you know there are some problems sometimes, as with any GPS uh, enabled device, where like a DJI Phantom drone will just go crazy and fly off because it loses a GPS signal. You don't have to worry about that stuff with this device, and so they've actually gotten special exceptions from governments to uh, allow it to be used around crowds. And uh, they're looking to get one from the FAA here in the U.S. I wouldn't hold my breath on that, but if that mm -hmm. pans out, that would be another selling point of this. You know, in their, their demo when they were here in New York, um, they actually took it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that they don't want people doing this when the product launches, but they actually took it to uh, the Museum of Natural History and they were flying it over like dinosaur bones and like using it indoors in there to show how you could use a drone to get new perspectives and stuff indoors like that. Um, I am guessing that the museum does not want people buying these and bringing them in there and flying them around. But uh, again, it just kind of opens your eyes to what kind of stuff you could do with something that's really portable and really easy to get in the air and not have to worry about messing around with all this stuff. Meanwhile, a lot of places are actually banning drones, like Pebble Beach, uh, the Concord, the car show, uh, banned yeah. drones recently. And some, uh, I think a PGA Tour event also banned drones. Well, as the technology gets better, you can do crazy stuff with it. You know, there was a guy a few years ago who flew his drone out of Brooklyn to Manhattan and he crashed it. And he was just flying by, you know, live video feed to his iPhone or his iPad. And the cops picked up the drone and uh, took the SD card out of it, took the footage he was recording and tracked it back to his apartment and arrested the guy. 
but that's just a testament to the technology here. People can buy these for relatively cheap and fly them without even having a line of sight on them, which can allow for some really cool footage, but it allows really irresponsible people to do really stupid things. So if you get a drone like this, it's easy to fly, but it's always attached to you, and it can't really get out of hand or do something stupid. So moving on from drones to the same old boring iPhone that we've all had for seven years. I know I'm tired of it. You're tired of it. 150 million people around the world are tired of it, but they keep buying it. The iPhone 6S coming out probably early next month. Uh, it's going to have some cool new stuff. It might have forced touch. It might have, uh, you know, a flippable camera. Who knows? One thing it's probably going to have is the same aluminum alloy as the Apple Watch. 7000 series aluminum, which means it's an alloy of aluminum, zinc, and magnesium. But there's a problem here. Some people have shown, or some people have seen their space gray sport watches. Uh, the, the writing that's on the back has actually started to chip off. In most cases, it's right where the, the Apple logo is, the, the sort of the biggest piece of text on there, but it's actually all around the thing. So is it, what do we think of this? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is this an anomaly? What's up? I feel, do they, uh, do they anodize those, the text on there or is it screen printed? I don't, I don't have a sport model. So, I'm not so sure. everything is anodized. The, um, the text itself is laser etched and with, a uh, to do, I can't remember the exact process right now. The terms escape me. But to do dark on dark, you actually apply another material when you do the laser etching. So yeah, it's the aluminum is anodized, and then there's a laser thing done to create the words. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that would really suck if it was on your phone. At so, least you can't really see it, right, on the watch, right? Because it. Was I mean, on the only back. you yeah, can it's on the back of the watch. Yeah. Somebody, um, if there's one, I don't know if we ran it in our story, but there's one picture where you can see that it's not rubbing off. It's actually the, uh, yeah, the yeah, aluminum or the coating flaking off. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be horrible. <laughs> yeah, it would be. And I don't imagine, I don't imagine that'd be good for um, corrosion either. Yeah. Um, some the whole point of 7000 series aluminum right is that it's much stiffer and harder um that also makes it difficult to machine but it makes it much more resistant i don't know about your about yours but my iphone 6 hasn't been dropped that much and my corners <laughs> are yeah that much and the corners of it have a nice series of dents in them right much worse than my 5 was and that one was like actively slammed onto the cement in tokyo so I am all for, given the, the the sort of the roundness of the corners, right? I am all for something harder as long as it doesn't get messed up. Yeah, I agree. I just don't want the back of um, my phone flaking off, <laughs> especially since it's going to be rubbing against my hand all the time. So this would only apply to the text on the back, though, right? Where it says iPhone and all the nonsense about the FCC uh, and all that. I would that. assume. Yeah. assume Presumably. That. Yeah. I would like to, before I move on from this subject, I would like to, uh, if you are an Apple fanboy, stop listening right now because you're going to hate me. We did this story. <laughs> we just lost all of our readers. We did this story and a ton of responses in the comments and on Twitter were, oh my God, this is a non-issue. It's normal wear and tear. This is the worst gate ever. No, it's not. Aluminum flaking off the back of your product is not normal wear and tear, right? If it was seven years in the future and we had, like, 
you had gone like spelunking and dove into the ocean with your Apple Watch, we can talk. But three months after you get it, when every single one of you is like wiping it down at night with that little black rag you get with a MacBook Pro to clean the screen, I know that's what you're doing. It's not normal wear and tear that aluminum is coming off of your device. Stop being Apple apologists when something is clearly wrong. Yeah, I feel like it. I feel like it's a chemical problem with the anodization process and whatever they're using to etch in the stuff. Obviously, it's um, I don't know what the word is uh, annealing. I don't know. It's mixing together, and then that whatever the softer material is that they used to etch is flaking off, and I guess pulling some of the aluminum with it. It looks like. Yeah. So I don't know how they're going to solve that. There's they can actually, screen print it off. That'd be fine. There's um there's I, a precedent for this, right, with Apple products. My MacBook, I, I guess some people have some kind of component in their sweat that reacts with the aluminum. My MacBook Pros all... No, I'm t- totally serious. This is a legitimate thing. Don't laugh at me. My MacBook Pros always get um, pitting along the edge of their wrist rests from where my wrists sit. Might want to get that checked out. <laughs> I mean, I might be dying, but, you know, at least if I go out, I'm going out taking some of my MacBook Pro with me. Yeah, <clears throat> I guess, well, acid, right? I mean, yeah. I guess it's also how you type. You well, I, mean, like, like, I, I don't wear a watch or anything. I, am, I don't think my skin is rubbing off of the aluminum. Maybe, Regarding maybe this you just, aluminum yeah. on the uh, iPhone, I would I would like it if the new iPhone were slightly darker in the space gray model like the watch is uh, i think the current space mm. gray is a little too light for me yeah isn't i actually either. prefer the look of the really dark um the iphone 5 yeah uh black slash space gray metal model was awesome yeah um and then they lightened it for the 5s and then they kept that same lighter style for the six uh but the apple watch uh sport um space gray is a darker shade and i prefer that it's the same with the new macbook right it's the same shade as the watch. E- yes, it is yeah. the same shade. I think so. That's I am hoping that the phone. Yeah, and that'll give them a way to differentiate. So you know you're old and uh, out of touch when you have a six and not a six S. Yeah, before it was you were old and busted if your phone was darker, and now it'll be. Or if your phone, yeah, if your phone was darker, <laughs> and now it'll be you're old and busted if your phone is lighter. <laughs> awesome. Yep. So, big component of iOS, recently released, Apple Music. It's their Spotify competitor. It's supposed to be the be-all, end-all of music streaming services because it's from Apple. And they have Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and all the street cred that comes with a former member of NWA. Uh, a A study came out recently... By recently, a couple days ago, I mean, uh, saying that a significant portion of Apple Music trial customers had stopped using the service, right? There was little information on the methodology. We kind of uh, hedged a little bit in our story. We said we're not... They surveyed 5,000 people. We don't know how many of those people are actually iOS users, so N could equal 5 in this particular case. Well, Apple didn't like the story, and they came back and said, no, 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 you're totally wrong. Uh, 79% of people who have signed up for a trial are still using the service. What does this mean, Neil and Mikey? Nothing yet until... uh... (laughs) Three months have passed, and we'll see what's going on. And that's the show. I mean, it's a bad. Yep, <laughs> it's a bad sign. It's a bad sign that there's twenty-one uh, percent attrition rate right now for a free service that's permanently installed in your phone and attached directly to the music uh, app. So I, I would be more concerned about that number. 
I don't know. I don't know that I'm particularly concerned about that number because I suspect there are a lot of people who saw Apple Music pop up and were like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll try this, uh, but don't really care about music or anything like that and then stop using it. I think I. But would they go through the effort to. I don't know. Well, it's not that much well, yeah, effort, yeah, right? Yeah, if you're a new customer, it's just yeah. one or two taps. It's true. Yeah. I would be curious to know. It's not really a big deal, but it just it raises suspicion about. Really, honestly, all of these surveys and polls out there. I mean, we've talked about this before with people coming up with numbers about Apple Watch sales and all this. Nobody really knows. And, you know, one of the things that critics, uh, when they see stories like that on websites like ours, uh, say, oh, why do you cover these things? Well, even Apple addresses these things. If you've ever listened to one of their quarterly earnings reports, they will take NPD numbers or good technology or whatever and proudly tout them if they say positive things about Apple and the enterprise or switcher adoption and all kinds of stuff. Um, but uh, then they will sometimes come out and dismiss these if they're not accurate. So it really people like these if they say something good about Apple is what it boils down to. We cover them because you click them. You, the readers, <laughs> have done this to yourselves. Don't let them in on our secrets. Ah, oh, damn it. Oh, well. <laughs> Mikey, from now on, you must change your editorial strategy to only write things no one will read. Done. <laughs> Much like this podcast, which no one will listen to. So, Good. we don't have any more topics. We are literally out of Apple News this week. So, uh, that is our show for this week. I am Shane, as always. I'm on Apple Insider. Mikey, you are? I am at MikeyCampbell81 on the Twitters. Awesome. And he's also at Apple Insider. He's not only on Twitter. Neil, you are? Uh, I am on Twitter at this is Neil. And it's a shame none of you will get to hear the conversation that we are having about that before I accidentally stopped the recording. But suffice it to say, <laughs> Neil was recently confused with Joel Osteen. So make sure when you're following him on Twitter, you're actually following him and not a crazy preacher. So that's it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>